Hello, welcome to React Roundup, the podcast where we keep you updated on all things React related. This show is sponsored by Raygun and produced by two companies, Top and Devs and Envoy. Top and Devs is where we create Top and Devs to get top in pay and recognition while working on interesting problems and making meaningful community contributions. And Envoy, which provides remote design and software development services on a performance basis. So clients only pay when tasks are delivered and approved. In today's episode, we will talk about patterns for React hooks. This episode is going to be for you that is already used to hooks, already used to functional programming in React, but also to all of you that are coming from a class-based background, maybe from a backend language, and you're just trying to understand why is everything done the way that it is done today with React, and how can you take, um, how can you make use of that and structure your code in a way that other developers are going to thank you for it. Joining me in today's episode is Charles Maxwood. Hey, everybody. Chris Fruin. Hi, all. Peter Oza. Hi, everyone. And, of course, me, Lucas Paganini. And, yeah, let's get into it. So, Peter, uh, you were the one that proposed this idea, so I imagine that you have a lot of things to share with the audience in terms of Patterns for React hooks, uh, code structure for that, when to isolate something in a hook, when to just use the uh, the native React hooks. So yeah, let, let's start with that. So um, I guess my first question would be, when would you create a hook for something? Okay, yeah, so when you create, to create a hook, you have to consider certain um, scenarios, right? So like, if I want to create a hook for a certain component, I will actually look at the component and see which values are changing. Okay, does it is it going to contain reactive states, or is it going to contain certain things that are going to change? And then also, do I need to maybe process those states, those values, and then return something back? Yeah. So in that kind of instance, when I look at those criteria, that's when I decide. Oh. I'm going to just extract this to you. Also, it comes with things like API calls. Yeah, I know that the API calls, the API calls can be called in the component. Either for me to just leave it in that component, I could just isolate it to the hook. Yeah, mostly it's just on things that are kind of changing or things that are kind of intensive. Yeah, so that's why I use hooks. I kind of isolate them into a hook. So yeah, I think that's just what I generally do. Okay, makes sense to me. Um, but when would you, for example, of course, every time that we need state, we're going to have to use React hooks and use state or any other um, hook that is going to allow us to react to changes and re-render our component. But when do you feel it's the time to really isolate that into a custom hook so that it can maybe be reused later? Like, would you only reuse something in a custom hook if it's definitely going to be reused right now? Or would it be advised to isolate things in a hook, in a custom hook, even if they are used in a single component just for the sake of reducing um, the total size of that file? What do you think about that? Okay, yeah, so... Um... For me, okay, in cases where I need to create a custom hook, one thing I consider is actually um, reusability, right? So if I'm going to create a custom hook for a component, I mean, it has to be reusable, right? So it won't really make sense to just create a custom hook for something that was, that is just specific to that component that can't be reused, right? So it's more much more important that, oh, I know that, yeah, this, state is going to be reused in certain components. Maybe I have an API call. I'm going to make this API call in different components. Yeah, I can just abstract that to a custom hook and use that. Or like need, I need a certain value and maybe something like, oh, I need to track um, my like school, uh, school events or something. Yeah, you know that that can be used in different components. I could just make that to be a hook. Or yeah, I want to do infinite scroll. Obviously, you know that 
many components going to use that. Or oh, the popular one, I want to ensure that um, when you on-click outside, that's the one that's kind of use event propagation to, yeah, to um, close down certain events and so on. Uh, yeah, I know I'll use a hook for that because they are kind of reusable. But in an instance where maybe certain things like business logic, where you know that you can't really use them elsewhere, they are just localized to that component. Yeah, I won't really feel that is the, the best way is to just abstract them to another to a hook, a custom hook, because then it's just only going to be one use and that's it. You can't really reuse them anymore. So I think. In creating a custom, we just consider the reusability. Yeah, so that's just my philosophy for it. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I have strong feelings about this, uh, but I would like to get uh, Chris and Chuck's opinion on that. So, Chris, how do you feel about that? Like, when do you isolate something in a custom hook? Yeah, so I I kind of view hooks for me fall into kind of different categories i can think of like two off the bat you kind of have like what peter mentioned maybe some are almost more like util hooks i was i was just looking at a, at a code base and i typically have like the the use interval or use timeout those you probably know you probably will use them more than once around your code base but then even even really truly your own custom hooks maybe they're application specific but then those two you know i'm probably going to need this in, in more than one component um, so yeah, for me, it really just comes down to, I'm, I'm typically the kind of dev, as soon as I'm using something probably twice somewhere, I just refactor it in, in, into a hook. Um, and even, I mean, even, even for one-off sometimes, I mean, it might just become a standard function anyway, but if there's really quite a lot of logic for, I don't know, some crazy complex component, sometimes it just makes sense to say like, you know, like use whatever the use state for this component and, and then it, you at least have all of your reactive code kind of separate from the market uh, from the markdown right so you have just probably like a one-liner of accessing all the state that's changing and then you can keep kind of that those two concerns like the display side and then the, the reactive side uh separate at least at least in in code so nice okay so so you are like uh, still leaning towards isolation only when there is reusability, but uh, there are also some other cases where you would uh, isolate is not just for reusability, but still it's mostly due to reusability. Interesting. Okay. How about you, Chuck? Uh, I'm going to be honest. I haven't done much React lately. I'm kind of still ramping things up and starting a project for React Geniuses. So, yeah, I'll have much more to say here in a few weeks. Okay, all right. So what I actually wanted to get at is, and I think Chris touched on that point, is when a component starts to get really complex and there are just too, many, too much logic happening in it, then you might want to isolate your hook in another file even, maybe just so that you can clean up a bit the logic of that component, even if that hook is not going to be reused anywhere else. And if you're going to do that, you don't even need to put your hook in like a separate folder just for reusable hooks. You can put that side by side with the component if it's just going to be used by that specific component. And I think this should be used way more often. My feeling is that React component files are generally much larger than they should be. There's just generally way too much happening. So I think that most developers could definitely benefit from breaking down more things, more of what they have in their component files, in other files, even if that's not going to be used in more than one place. Like Even if it's used in one place, just one place, I still think, that in a lot of cases, probably most, it's a lot more beneficial to do that than just being an edge case. I don't think it's an edge case. I think this should probably be the default for most situations. On Just to give you guys an idea, the average 
file size for um, a React file that I open is generally like 800 lines or so. That's the average. I don't know what's the experience for you guys, but that's what I'm used to seeing in other projects. And I think that's just too much. That's way too much. I think we should be striving to stay at at least less than 500 lines, but ideally 300 or, or something, that, that should be enough. So yeah, my take is I tend to isolate things in other files way more often than other developers, even when things are not um, going to be reused right away, even when things don't seem like they're going to be reused at all. Uh, I still generally isolate things. Also makes it easier for me to write tests for the those functions. So yeah. Yeah, and you you have to think about like what's what's the actual quote unquote risk or overhead. I mean, now that we have functional components, you're adding what the the name, okay, the props, and then the name of the component, even if it's only used once, and then two brackets. So you've added whatever three lines. To, to save, you know, to get away from those 800 line uh, components. And I, I, I've seen that and I'm even I'm I think we're all guilty of that. I think it's one of the advantages and disadvantages of React is that, you know, once you've learned the basics, it's very easy to, to quickly build and write these these components. And then before you know it, you've got you've got some giant thing like, yeah, it's it's probably even then at those sizes still understandable, but it's just like a lot of usually markup, you have to skip through and see like, okay, where does this variable go? You know, what's happening here? Um, but yeah, that's in, you know, help why I'm, why I'm here on, on this podcast, why I love React so much. You can just snag, you know, you've got, I'm thinking of like an example, like maybe like a table row. You just pull out that markdown, you see, you know, what state variables in there, and they just become props, right? And then you're halfway, you know, you're halfway done to refactoring those, those larger component files. So, I'm going to go even further and say that sometimes I even isolate just the styled components. Like sometimes I have just the styles.ts file just for the styled components because sometimes like 50% of the file is just those dumb presentational components that are taking up space in the bottom. And they are not really um, making the experience of understanding the file harder because they are like in the bottom, they're like isolated in their own uh, in their own space. But still, sometimes when there are just way too many of them, I just can't stand and, and I just isolate them in, in other files. But that one is definitely just a personal preference. It's not something that I do that I do a lot. What I do mostly is isolating hooks. But even styled components, I think, sometimes can be isolated in their own files. It even reminds me of the old days where we actually had like a file for HTML, another for TypeScript, another for uh, for CSS, right? So when I isolate the styled components, it kind of feels like that's the CSS file. Um, I like that probably because I also do a lot of Angular development and Angular separates those things. So maybe that's kind of something that I'm bringing uh, from my Angular development stuff. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. So I think what an issue that uh, most React developers actually face is the fact that because React is not opinionated, right? Because yeah, you could just it doesn't really have like an app is a style of its own. You could just do whatever you want. Just like the whole the whole component is just like your your field to just do whatever you want, right? So a lot of people kind of you know decide to build it the way they want to, right? So I feel if they actually have an idea of setting patterns, right? To building stuff, I feel it's actually help. Right? For example, packing a lot of like logic in one React component, first of all, it's not really nice. At first, like, what I actually would do is I first differ differentiate my components into two. 
okay, I, there, there is a component I know that have maybe like a business logic, an API call or certain things. That would be a certain component. That would be like a container component, right? So the, that component will just be a container. Then I have one that it's a presentational component. That's the UI, clearly like, you won't see anything like you state or whatever, any hook. It's just receiving data from it as props, right? So this kind of patterns, there's there's still also the pattern of, right, as you said, isolating certain aspects in hooks, right? So if a lot of people adopt that as well, I think it could become more cleaner and more, much better. And there's still, like I said, I also do a lot of Angular development as well too. I like the pattern of Angular services, right? So I actually kind of adopted that aspect in React too. So I, I think there was a reference which said that, yeah, there are some certain things we need to isolate in the hook, right? But if you actually have like a, an idea of a service, maybe you put your business logic in a service, you create like a class or maybe a very big function or a file that holds your slope, you won't really have any need to really isolate much in your component because at the end of the day, you're not even doing calculations in your component. Everything is done in your service and you're just importing it to your component. So it's going to be kind of, it's not going to be bloated, right? So I think it's just how, because React is very, it's not opinionated, right? So a lot of people just, it gives them the ability to kind of decide what they want to. And I feel maybe if design patterns can be taught very well about that, like, oh, you could do this, you could do that. Like now, I know, I feel a lot of people actually don't know the reasons why um, hooks, right? And um, they really abuse a lot of hooks. Like I've seen hooks like use memo being abused so much. Like, like um, things we are never supposed to memorize, you're just stamping use memo into it and set so, so yeah. I feel yeah, that's actually, I think design patterns is actually very important to know what most we are developers because since React doesn't have that established pattern, I feel that's what they need to actually know so that they can become better in structuring the code base, yeah. I agree. And I think that can be something that we're, we're trying to introduce here, right? So since React is not opinionated, let's bring some some opinions into it, uh, see yeah. if we can help everyone out. But yeah, definitely a lot of what we say here is going to be, um, it's going to be based on personal preferences. But also... I would encourage everyone listening to think about this for a second, because even though a lot of code patterns are going to be based on personal preference, that personal preference may have been built after years of working with that technology and understanding what reduces the mental load of other developers and what makes it clearer and easier for everyone else to, to understand. So there's always something of a mutual benefit in a personal preference. It's rarely the case where a personal preference from a senior developer, at least, is really something super specific to that developer and others are not going to agree. What I've seen the most is like personal preferences from senior engineers in a particular technology tend to be kind of like a general agreement that others have. I wouldn't say that it's like an anonymous agreement, uh, a unanimous agreement, and everyone agrees with that because there are certainly things that are purely cosmetic. For example, um, just adding underscore prefixes to your private uh, private members, for example. That's very, very cosmetic. But the things that we're talking about here, like isolating things and custom hooks, when to isolate that, um, how to organize your file structure. I think that's not cosmetic. That really has a, a strong functional um, value for all the engineers in the code base. So yeah, I wouldn't just say that as being like just a personal preference. I think in most cases, this is definitely like a code quality improvement. Yeah, let, let's see what else we got. So uh, we talked about when to isolate things into hooks. Um, what else do, do we have with regards to common code patterns in React? Um, Chris, Peter, maybe you have something in mind? 
Yeah, I'd like I'd like to add something. This gets pretty pretty specific into maybe what you're talking about about like fairly opinionated, but but it's something like that I've finally kind of solidified in my own React career. So and I'd like to hear you guys. Uh, maybe you disagree completely, and then then we'll see. But I have a I have a very specific order when I have a com- when I write a component uh, of of how just how I I guess format it. So I, what I do is, and yeah, I, these will be opinionated. So like my first line, I'll like destructure all the props that I need. So, you know, the big, the big bracket um, off the props. And then what I'll do is if I'm using Redux, so like a more global state or at least a, a higher shared state, I use the, the app selector. Then I use the dispatch. Then comes if there's any local state, I have those. And then anything else like use ref, or anything below that, and then finally, the use effect, uh, or any other. If you're doing like one of the like use layout or something like that, and the re- the way, so I would maybe I would argue like that order doesn't matter, but maybe in a given code base, you should probably. I think it's nice to follow the same same order uh, in any way. You like I, I think at least like the use effect below makes sense because you typically need state variable in there anyway. Um, but I think if you can manage kind of a, the same pattern across at least one code base, maybe not all code bases, but at least one project or something, it's really nice because then when you look at a component, you know exactly like, you know exactly where everything's going to be, right? And in what, what line, uh, more or less. So I, I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts about that. Yeah, that sounds great too. Uh, I'm also a fan of Redux as well. So, yeah. Although, um, I yeah. So, um, I start with Redux, which is um, because first of all, I try to differentiate. I try to like differentiate the state of my application into two. Okay, yeah, I have a client state and I have a server state, right? So, the server state aspect, yeah, I could use things like maybe React query to handle that. And then find a way to kind of sync it to my Redux state. Yeah. Then after doing that as well, then coming to components centralized as well. Then I, like I said, I use hooks to isolate certain business logics. So if I have like a complex logic I need to execute in the component, I could put that into a hook and then put that. And then my use state is regularly for certain changes in that component and yeah, just general changes. Yeah, previously I usually use state for forms as well, but then I saw a kind of bottleneck with using use state, like to using use state for form validation and so on. Like I know a lot of people use it. I think it's called um I think it's on um, controlled state patterns, right? Yeah, where you have um yeah, like I, I know it's kind of the like the regular or oh, you type in on change and then it actually um affects this from um, the states, right? So that kind of uh, so yeah, so I think generally um do you use it use I just use it now for just generally component states, things are going to change and so on. Then server state is the my server state is used query and my client state is with Redux. Yeah, I think that's I I like that trick about the order. Um, first off, like the use effect at the end, I think is a no-brainer. As you said, Chris, like we generally need those state variables anyway, so there's no reason to uh, to not have that at the end. So I think that makes total sense. Uh, I would still, I don't know if I would always put them in order of what they are because I like to keep things in the order of what they are related to. But in the same sense, like if you're inside a particular component and that component has a very clear responsibility, then everything is supposed to be very um, close. All the responsibilities should be very close. So that shouldn't be a problem. But come on, let's be honest. Like a lot of components out there, they are doing way too much. And then when you have components doing way too much, if you put things in the order of what they are, maybe you have like 
let's say that you have a component that renders users and user groups, for example. And then you have hooks that are specific to the user's state and other hooks that are specific to the user group's state. I would rather keep all of them close together based on the feature that they are related to. So all the user-related hooks together, all the user group-related hooks together, than just having like all use effect, all use state, all use ref together, if that makes sense. But still, like that, that also comes from my mentality of thinking about how how to even isolate those things into even even more custom hooks. So I generally do that because it makes me it makes it even easier for me to later just create a hook that is just going to be responsible for exposing the features related to users, and another for the things that are exposing just the features related to user groups, even again, if even if they're not going to be reused uh, somewhere else. So yeah, I like to keep them grouped based on the feature. Yeah, I think as kind of a rule of thumb in general, I mean, as always, it depends. But if you're finding your component has like two or even two or three use effects, it's not always, but it's typically a sign you're probably doing too much. Uh, in or trying to do too much in one component. Um, again, it depends if you have a very, you know, some very complex triggering, triggering stuff, but then maybe that's even a, an area for refactoring anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I would, just out of my own curiosity, I'm interested because I've heard many different opinions. What do you think about my, the props destructuring? Do you guys like the props dot whatever, or I like I always destructure them. I mean, I, I know it can conflict then with local variables, but then I don't know. I typically avoid that anyway. But uh, would like to hear you guys which pattern you prefer, or maybe it depends. Yeah, I go. I, I think I'm with you on this one as well, Chris. Yeah, it's better to actually destructure the props. So I'm kind of a fan of that as well. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah. it's much. Yeah. I'm a fan of that because, um, first of all, I think if you use TypeScript, just if you're typing right the components, I think it's going to, yeah, obviously the, the type is going to have like the setting fields so required. So, yeah, I don't think you actually want into any problem with that much. But that, I feel that's actually much better and it's much easier to complain because then seeing props dot, props dot, yeah, kind of gives me the. <laughs> yeah, I'm with both of you. I prefer destructuring. There are some situations where I don't, um, but they're generally a sign of a larger issue. For example, if I'm just doing a lot of prop drilling and then I don't want to destructure because I, I want to like pass in the, like destructure the object itself to pass the properties to, to the child component. But that's generally like a very bad sign and that something's really wrong in the code base. Uh, so that doesn't happen very often. But if I find myself just getting the props to, to drill them downwards, then I might just grab the entire uh, properties as just a variable called props uh, and then do that. But mostly I do the structuring too. That works, yeah. That's the best way kind of. We found out that hundred percent. Yeah, that that's that's actually another topic, right? So, how do you guys deal with just passing properties to to child components? Um, of course, like prop drilling shouldn't really be the the recommended approach, but sometimes it just feels like um, is it would be such a small thing that it wouldn't make sense to create like a, a context for that or, or something like that. But how do you feel about that? Oh well, yeah, so for prop drilling, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of prop drilling when it's quite probably like I think one or two components in might, I think the moment it exceeds like maybe two components and I feel, oh yeah, maybe I have to start using context because then, can come three, four, five components deep and 
yeah. So I I kind of stop using props when I say, oh, this data required is going to be like needed in more than two components day. Yeah. But overall, yeah, if I actually see it needs to use it to actually pass down things as props, yeah, why not? It's actually easier to do so than to just maybe I think I think this is another pattern a lot of people kind of abuse in a way. Whereby they try to avoid props in general because of the fear of prop building that they create context for every single thing. Like every single thing. Like even like you just you certainly just look at the data and be like, oh, this could just pass this with a props and you're seeing a very big context with certain like something as something as small as oh, I have a small component. I just want this component to flicker on different modes. Just one component, and I'm saying no, the context and this and that. I'm, no, no, no. Like no, it's, it's just so extreme. It's like using a sledgehammer to kill an ant. That's way overkill, right? So I just, in that instance, I would just advise you to use force because why not? It's easier and it's just one component down, right? But then if it exceeds maybe two or three, then I know that oh. Probably it's going to be more so. I use context. Now, what do you think, Chris? When do you feel prop dealing is efficient or better? Yeah, it's. I'm I'm finding myself kind of internally battling because I'm. To be honest, I'm I'm more of a. I don't like when there's millions of prop options, but with that said, I'm I'm also thinking of you know sometimes you get these really nice. Um, I mean, very powerful components, you know, from some library somewhere. And they do have, you know, just by the way, you know, the functionality they provide, you have many, many options. Uh, I guess, so maybe what I should should refine that is when there's, you know, 20 required uh, properties uh, for a component, then it's, then it's a little bit, somehow that's a bit of a smell, I think. Uh, you're throwing too many things around. Um, but, you know, like optional stuff. Then I guess maybe that's maybe that's where I would would draw the line, um, but yeah, I, it depends for me. Like again, I typically try to use or have yeah, I would say like four or five props. I, I just I can't think of an example where I have a lot of stuff going around. Um, and in term, I am more of a instead of context, I typically use Redux for when there's something shared um i typically i just haven't i haven't used context but at the end of the day it's they're quite similar right like a redux slice and context is right you can grab at stuff uh where you need it across across multiple components um but yeah i'm not sure if i answered your question i i, I just lean more towards it, for me, it always comes back to, can, do I understand what this one component's doing? And typically, from the mental overhead is, you know, three, four required props is probably good. If you've got more, maybe you still need, you need some other components in between or, or you need to move your state higher up in, into Redux. Or, it does depend. It does depend. But uh, yeah, that's, I guess, my general opinion there. Yeah, that sounds nice. I think one thing I know, uh, I'm actually, I think one thing I feel a lot of people actually um, do as well is that, yeah, they kind of abuse context in a way that they try to turn context, the context API to a redox. Because I, yeah, I've seen a lot of people trying to make context API work for state management, right? I think that's an issue that's kind of very, I've seen it in so many code base. And I was like, why don't you just use Redux? Like you want, like this is actually just managing the state of the application. And then you'll see um, context with a mix of you know, use reducers and and just make sure of jumbled up, right? So I think, yeah, I think I get your point on using Redux as a um because I think that's very much very, very much preferred because yeah, you actually acknowledge that yeah, you have a kind of a global state you need to work with. And then you use Redux for that. Yeah. I think that's that's still okay as well. What do you think, Lucas? I think I'm I'm also with Chris on this. 
like the most important metric is if you can look at the component and understand its responsibility and you can understand why it depends on the things that it's asking. So why is this component requesting those properties to, to render? If the if you can look at each of the properties and you can understand why they're being asked, then I think that's a, that's a good metric for success. And I also agree with lifting state to react to Redux when there's just too much going on in, in the component itself. So yeah, I, I actually think that I agree completely with with your opinion on this, Chris. Yeah, and also I should mention, so for for listeners, I would also avoid, don't just think, oh, I'm going to put every single state variable in Redux. I, I used to, that was almost, you know, when I was starting out, that's almost the pattern I would go for. But then you realize when you have, you know, then your Redux, then your Redux state itself is also looking, you know, humongous with 50 properties. And then you realize, you know, there's there's a reason for the use state, you know, a local state variable. Uh, there's a reason for that. It doesn't need to run through your entire Redux tree. Um, I just, I think I'm thinking of examples. I, I think I was doing that. Uh, I think Peter was mentioning like with forms, I was throwing the whole form state into the Redux. So, but it's like, I don't need that. The form lives here in this component. Like it makes sense, like keep it there. Um, so yeah, don't... <laughs> Uh, don't don't throw everything into Redux. I guess really really think about what needs to be shared and, and where. Um, yeah, that that one is definitely a very important advice. I think especially for devs that are getting used to uh, to the event sourcing pattern, it's just so easy. And by the way, for those of you that that may not know it from by this name, like Redux is just event sourcing at the end of the day. People say, oh, the Redux pattern or the Flux pattern, but it's event sourcing. <laughs> it actually is event sourcing. That's the, the original technical name. And for everyone that learns event sourcing, it's just such a mind-blowing moment. They're like, oh my God, yes. Why didn't I ever think of isolating things and building a state machine? And then people start thinking that that's the answer for everything. You know, I myself, uh, I got a bit crazy about um, CQRS. So I don't know. That's not like super common, but CQRS stands for Command Query Responsibility Segregation. And it's basically when you isolate the actions from the events. So the actions are the things that actually mutate. Uh, or that can cause a mutation. And the events are just things that already happened and they they state the, the changes that they, uh, that they applied. So what we currently call actions in, in Redux is probably, it's generally a mix of, of what we would call commands and what we would call queries. But if you have a, an entire system that uses CQRS, then you have like such great scalability because every time that you're just making queries, those queries can be getting the data from replicas of the original database. And those replicas can be read-only because they're not going to change anything. They're just queries, immutable queries, right? It's also so much easier for you to cache. And then everything that changes the state is isolated in the commands. And these commands have to talk directly to the uh, instances of the database that actually can make changes and that replicate the state to the, to the read-only replicas. So it's like this gigantic infrastructure, mostly for, for backend applications. Uh, I never seen it being done in the front end. So it's like this entire architecture pattern uh, to have like really scalable backend applications, and it all starts from event sourcing. And I was guilty of like getting into event sourcing, learning about secure as, and thinking this is the way everything needs to be built. Like if I do a backend today, it needs to be in secure as. Like 
I'm going to have infinite scalability. I'm never going to have to worry about data migrations ever again because I have every single event that ever happened in my application. Everything is going to be event sourced. But if you try to do it, it's just such a pain. (laughs) It's just so much boilerplate. There's no... um, Everything is eventually consistent, is not immediately consistent. And another big issue is that even if you're just starting your new project, you're already starting with like such a big overhead in terms of actual server costs, because with that structure, if you really want it to be scalable, then you would at least isolate the um, the command processors from the query processors And that alone, you're already introducing a microservice approach from day one. So it's like, it's such a high complexity to just start a project that way that over time I realized that, yep, this is great when the project I'm working on actually becomes the next Instagram. Before that, and no, no, there's there's really no need. So yeah, there are like multiple layers of, thinking that event sourcing is the final answer. But really, it always adds complexity. So we need to keep that in mind. Are we really okay with having that level of complexity right now? Or should we just keep that in the backlog for when we actually need that level of scalability? Yeah, I think that brings up a good point too in in general, like what... (laughs) what we were mentioning, like if you're trying to throw everything into Redux or some higher state is, is this concept of performance, right? Because this whole prop story is more or less what controls the re-rendering, right? Of course, yeah, you may have internal state in your, in your uh, components, which causes re-rendering, but it's also the props. So when you have, you know, who knows, 15, 20 props, one may be changing you if you've got that many props going around you may not even realize like am i even using this do i only need this initially uh so all these all these things at the end of the day can can impact performance so if you're not careful in you know taking too much advantage of this this whole flexible react ecosystem uh i think eventually if it can come and and, and hit you with with performance so uh you know yeah I think we've we've kept repeating this the the whole show, but it really does come down to not only readability, but you know what is this component doing? Uh, what does it really need in terms of props and state, um, and 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 go from there, and and not just not just uh, take advantage of the flexibility of of React and throw everything in some some giant state or some some giant prop array somewhere. Yeah, I kind of agree with what Chris says as well. So. It's best not to just bloat your Redux store. Yeah, it's just bloat it with so many properties to get to affect performance. Because at the end of the day, it's still a kind of like cool JavaScript, right? You're still saving data. And the bigger your data is, right, processing is going to take time and retrieval and so on and so forth. So most of the time, it's best to just use some, use, local states for certain actions and then also use redux when you need to like i said that's why it's i like it's your global states things that are kind of you feel are kind of global you kind of need that for certain components or most components right like putting like what could you say putting formed data in bigger components is kind of yeah under vacuum because it's kind of centralized um, your component the component housing the form that's there's a use state there it can be used right to localize that form data so it's actually very best data to use that right so i think i kind of agree with what you said so it's best to kind of from what we said just consider um just consider like do not overbloat your global states as much as possible right Try to just minimize its use as much as possible. Yeah. A lot of lot of stuff discussed today. So let's start wrapping up. Let's do some quick promos and then we can close up this episode. I hope this was 
helpful for a lot of people. I know that it definitely would have been helpful to me if I were starting out. Uh, a lot of things here like took me a while to to get to the to the state. So I definitely think this would have been a lot valuable, especially when you're working with other team members. So so yeah, I think this was really good. Um I'm going to do my mine really quickly. So I'm just going to promote Envoid. So for those of you that might not be familiar with it, it's U-N-V-O-I-D, Envoid.com. And basically, Envoid is the safest way to outsource or augment your software development stuff. Why? Because every single other software development company is going to bill you by the time and resources. And Envoid is the only company that is going to bill you just based on the actual tasks that were delivered. And the clients only pay after the tasks are approved. So it's not even a matter of just the Envoid developers delivering the tasks and saying, hey, okay, now give me the money. No, it's like they have to deliver and has to actually be approved by the client, which guarantees that it's going to be within the quality standards that the client is expecting. So it's really, it's a very, very interesting model. And it's the most meritocratic way to hire an engineer because you're not just thinking about like, oh, this person is a junior, this is a plane, this is a senior. No, you're just hiring Envoy engineers as if it were a black box, and then you're just going to pay by what they actually deliver. So I think this is a much more meritocratic way, even for the engineers themselves, because I know a lot of great professionals that have three years of experience and they do better work than other professionals that have 10 years of experience. So this model is actually also beneficial to the engineers, because even if they have less uh, work experience, if they can deliver more, if they do a better work, then they're going to deliver more points at the end of the day, which is uh, going to reflect on how much they get paid. So it's really it's really an interesting model for both parts. So yeah, if you're interested in either outsourcing your software development project or just augmenting your staff to do some other tasks that maybe your full-time engineers are just full of other things to do and they can't tackle uh, those other projects, then definitely take a look at Envoid.com. And honestly, if you're into that, don't take too long because end of the year is always like kind of crazy. A lot of companies are like approving their budget. So um, there are even, there's a real possibility that if you take too long, Envoid might just say, hey, we're literally out of engineers at the moment. You're going to have to wait a while because Envoid engineers are not freelancers. They're employees. So they are hired and trained before before they start doing client work. So that takes a while. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be my promo for today. Okay. So Peter, what do you have for us? Yeah, well, okay. So... Not too much really though. Oh, although, um, yeah. So, um, I okay. Maybe to follow up, I think I can give up my profile right to follow up on LinkedIn and look at some certain posts right on. Yeah, should I share that? Yeah, maybe sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of not kind. I'm kind of not too big on Twitter. Kind of, I'm just more of like a LinkedIn guy. You know, it sounds boring, but yeah, I just yeah, kind of. I just stay more on LinkedIn to um to just follow up with the friends, right? So yeah, just give me a sec. Let me share my. When you have the link, Peter. Uh, you can just send it in the comments and everyone that is listening to us live will be able to to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, sure. I have it here already. Let me paste it on the comments. Yeah. 
All right. Okay. Uh, Chris, how about you? Yep. I'm probably just going to send a link uh, to my blog again. I have a, a post that's probably relevant to what we were talking about. So for people who are maybe brand new to hooks or, or coming from, from class components, I basically tried to go through the hooks as if it were alphabet soup. So really A, B, C, very small variables. And you know this, this is what use state does. This is what use effect does. Uh, looking at it now, I think I have to, I think I have to add a few more um, examples, but, uh, but yeah, I'll just, I'll post the, the link to that, that post there. I think it's a good introduction without, without involving, uh, any other complicated actual effects from some project or whatever really just focuses on what are hooks from the ground up. All right, cool, cool. A lot of, a lot of learning material from you two. And how about you, Jack? Yep. So, uh, two things. One is you can go to, uh, if you go to reactroundup.com or you can go to topendevs.com and click on React Roundup, um, there's going to be uh, an option on there for you to get the premium version of the co- uh, podcast, which is effectively no ads. Um, the other thing that it does is I'm going to be doing a monthly uh, call. It'll be on StreamYard like this, except it's using the webinar feature. So you'll actually be in StreamYard. And what we're going to do during those calls is we're going to discuss the show. So um, I'm going to be getting ideas from the listeners and from the other hosts. So I'll invite the other hosts. This is news to them, by the way. I just uh, lined this up. Um, But what we'll do is then if there's a person that you want to hear from. So let's say you want to hear from Dan Abramoff again or, uh, you know, let's see if we can get Jordan Walk, even though he's working on something else now, to come in and uh, tell us more stories about working at Facebook or whatever, right? Um, so we'll get them in and, uh, then I can have my team go invite them and say, Hey, the listeners wanted to have you on, or Hey, the host wanted to have you on and we can have that all put together and figured out. So, um, those are the two things we're actually on the cusp of launching our app that has the content in it. So you can either get the premium content there, or when you sign up, you'll also get an email that basically says, Hey, uh, here's a private rss feed for you to add to your podcast app so that you can just get it with all of your other podcasts and then you can unsubscribe from the main feed and you can just subscribe to the ad free feed cool so i think this is all for today everyone thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one